You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. You've probably heard of the 10th Mountain Division, but did you know that climbing is just as or more important than skiing in shaping this division of expert mountaineering troops? In this episode, we sat down with Christian Beckwith, the creator of the 90 Pound Rucksack podcast and writer of a book by the same name, to talk about how climbers influenced the creation of the 10th Mountain Division, how climbing itself was critical to a battle in Italy that helped facilitate the end of the Second World War, and the many gear developments that evolved from the 10th Mountain Division that shaped the climbing and mountaineering boom after the war. If you're a history buff, you're going to especially love this episode. But even as someone who doesn't have a particular connection to history or especially military history, you can't deny that tracing the impact of climbing on a world scale hits the spot for anyone who loves this sport. Hi, Christian. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. I would love for us to just start with a little introduction. Can you introduce yourself and a little bit of your climbing career? Yeah. Well, good morning. So my my name is Christian Beckwith, and I live in Jackson, Wyoming, and I've been here for around 30 years. And I started my first magazine, The Mountain Yodel, when I got here in around 1994. And then on the basis of that, Yvonne Chouinard threw my name in the hat to edit the American Alpine Journal, which I did. When H. Adams Carter, who had made it into the Chronicle of World Mountaineering, died in 1995. So I edited the journal from 96 until 2001. Then I started Alpinist Magazine, and I edited that until 2007. So I've been climbing and skiing for uh, a number of decades now, and I've been chronicling the history of climbing for a long time as well. I'm currently the the founder and board chair of the Teton Climbers Coalition. So this is our local climbing organization here in the Tetons. And I am currently working on a project called 90 Pound Rucksack. That is the story of the 10th Mountain Division and the dawn of outdoor recreation in America. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of how you found yourself starting to tell that story because it's becoming really big, right? You're developing a very lengthy, involved podcast about it. There will be a book about it. Um, tell me how you kind of stumbled upon the story, why you got excited about it, and kind of what it, were the threads that really got you invested? Well, I've never met a simple problem I haven't been able to complicate, and that seems to be bearing uh, fruit here too. So I began working on a history of Teton climbing last year. And I'd written all the way from the first ascent of the enclosure, and the enclosure is the satellite, the sole satellite peak of the Grand Teton here in, um, in Grand Teton National Park. And that was done in the 1600s by a 13-year-old Shoshone boy. And so I'd written from there all the way through the 1930s, and Grand Teton National Park was founded in 1929. That's when the climbing really started taking off, you know, first starting in the early 1920s. And then in the 30s, it got big. And we were seeing climbers from all over the place come here. Um, and it became the epicenter of American mountaineering. And so it was a fascinating project to take on. And one of the ways that I was approaching it 
was by transcribing the summit registers from the Teton. So I was looking at who was here. I was trying to get a sense of the ecosystem that surrounded the climbers of the day and the climbing of the day. And the other way that I was approaching it was just reading the American Alpine Journal. So I've got a set and I'd just gone through all the various entries and that had given me a, an, a decent understanding of the um, who was climbing here, who was really putting up the, the important routes, what the, what the community was like. And then I got to the 19, it was in August 31, 1941, entry in the Grand Teton Summit Register. And that was made by two brothers named Joe and Paul Stetner. And they'd gone up. I think I think that was just up the Owen Spaulding route, but a few days earlier they had actually made the fourth ascent of the North Ridge of the Grand, which at the time was still a, a bit of a test piece. And what was interesting about the Stetner entry was that it was the only entry for uh, the next four years, because war broke out, and the entry that next went into the summer registers was again by Joe Stetner. But that was written in 1945, in September of 1945. And in between those two dates was a blank. We didn't, I didn't know what happened in the Tetons during that time. And not very much happened in part because all the climbers were in the 10th Mountain Division. They'd all gone to fight. And so having, I knew that the 10th had been an important um, chapter in climbing's history in the, in the country. And so I began to look at the history of um, the 10th Mountain Division itself. And I was coming at it from the perspective of how this would fit into the book. And so I was specifically trying to figure out how to tell the story of the 10th Mountain Division from the perspective of Teton climbers. And so we've got a number of folks who in the 1930s were um, seminal figures in the American climbing scene. They included Paul Petzl, who in 1930 eight had been on a climbing expedition sponsored by the American Alpine Club to K2, world's second highest peak. And this was put together by Charlie Halliston and Bob Bates was part of it, um, as was Bill House, both American Alpine Club members and, and uh, really powerful climbers, young climbers of the day. And Paul Petzl at that point reached an altitude of 26,100 feet, which was higher than anybody had ever climbed in history. So I knew he was a big part of it. Um, I was looking at folks like H. Adams Carter and uh, Bob Bates, who they really cut their teeth in Alaska and the Yukon in the 1930s, but they also climbed here in the Tetons. And so I was looking at their activity here and then looking at how it translated to the war um, and specifically with the, the 10th Mountain Division. And then folks like the Stetner brothers. And the Stetners were such an interesting um, they're, they're so interesting in part because they're an example of what happened with the rise of the Third Reich in the 1930s in Germany and the impact that it had on German and Austrian um, climbers and skiing, skiers before the war. Because the Stettner brothers' dad was killed in 1919 by right-wing thugs at just around the same time that Adolf Hitler was coming onto the scene and really politicizing the um, the National Socialist uh, Workers Party, the Nazi, which then became the Nazi Party. So the Stettners, uh, their mother got them out of the country in 1926, and Joe emigrated to Chicago, and um, Paul followed um, 
I think a year later, and then they went on to take the skill sets that they developed in Germany and apply them to some of the test pieces here in the United States. And so they're very well known for the Stettner Ledges on Long's Peak, a climb they accomplished in 1927 uh, from Chicago on their Indian motorcycles and uh, using a rope that they found in a hardware store in Estes Park. And at 5'8", you know, and I think it's around 600 feet long, it was one of the hardest climbs done in the country at the time. And so I'd, I'd been able to figure out all the various um, elements of the 10th Mountain Division, and I'd, I'd identified these climbers who had Teton roots and figured out a way to use them as the narrative vehicles to tell the story of the 10th Mountain Division, except for one element. And this was the signature action of the of the division when it deployed to Italy. So you were looking into all these climbers, the Stettners, Paul Petzl, Bill House, etc., who were breaking barriers at the time, climbing and putting up iconic routes in the Tetons, and who would become associated with the 10th Mountain Division. But the missing part was how these people were connected to the mission-critical Reaver Ridge action at the quote-unquote Gothic line, which is really the primary way that the 10th Mountain Division engaged in World War II. So can you tell us about this critical military action and what you discovered that connected the dots for you? So they trained for uh, two and a half years in Camp Hale in the Colorado Rockies at 9,200 feet, and they become incredibly fit. And their stamina had gone through the roof, and they become proficient in ski mountaineering and military climbing. And in December 1944, General Marshall decided to finally use them um, by deploying them to Italy to break something called the Gothic Line. So in Italy's Apennine Mountains, there was a, uh, a fortified line held by the Germans that cut off um, allied advances to the Po Valley. And the Po Valley was a critical, uh, it was a critical objective because it provided the materiel and the food for the German troops. And Germany was using the Italian theater, theater to bog the allied troops down so that they couldn't put more resources toward uh, the European theater and the fighting that was going on in France. And so the Americans had to, the Allied forces had to break that Gothic line in order to um, win the war. And the problem was that the Germans had used 15,000 slave, labor, slave laborers to establish um, these fortifications along the ridges and, and on the summits of the Apennine Mountains. And um, they had machine gun posts and howitzers. And the, in military fighting, those who occupy the high positions win because they're able to shoot down on um, anybody trying to take those same positions. And so Marshall knew that he needed a crack outfit that he could send to the Apennines who could actually break that line. And the U.S. Army's 5th Army had tried for eight months. Uh, I think uh, something like 1.2 million soldiers had been um, fighting over this, uh, this so-called Gothic line uh, for, for eight months without success. And one of the key objectives was this mountain called Mount Belvedere. So these are more, Belvedere is more of a um, uh, sort of a New England type mountain than, a, for example, a Teton. Um, but the problem with Mount Belvedere, which overlooked Highway 64, which was the key route between Bologna and Florence, which was how the Germans were getting all the material into the Gothic line to, to protect that high point, was that they couldn't, they couldn't get 
the Allied forces could not take it and hold it because of an adjacent ridge. And this ridge was higher, and it looked down on anybody that was trying to get up Mount, Mount Belvedere. And this ridge was around five miles long, and it came to be known as Reaver Ridge. And on one side, on the western side, it was gentle enough that the German troops could drive their, their vehicles up to the top to resupply their, their soldiers. On the other side, on the eastern side, it was steep. And it was so steep that the Germans thought that it was unclimbable. So they did not protect it. So in January of 1945, the 13,129 soldiers of the 10th Mountain Division arrived in Italy and began making their way toward the front, toward the Gothic line. And over the course of about three weeks, they reconnoitered all the routes on Riva Ridge under cover of darkness because the Germans could see them otherwise. And they identified five ways, five routes to the, to the summit, to the ridgeline summit. And that was the key incident, the key action of the 10th Mountain Division. And we can talk about that in just a bit. As I was transcribing the summit registers of the Tetons, I found all the folks that were climbing here um, in the 1930s and 40s. And so I'd begun reading over all the military histories of the 10th Mountain Division. And in one of them, I came across a reference to a bow-legged, cursing mountain climber who had reconnoitered the routes up Reaver Ridge. And then on February 18th, 1945, let his 200 soldiers up the hardest line to a summit called Monte Saracicha. And this line, he'd had to fix six pitches on it to get his troops up it. And he, along with the other, the 700, 800 other 10th Mountain Division soldiers, had on this evening of February 18th, 19th, so under cover of darkness, using no headlamps, they'd taken the ridge without a casualty and captured the Germans, captured to kill the Germans on top. The following day, the German counter-assaults had reclaimed a key position along this ridge. And in one of these military histories, this fellow Charles Wellborn, who wrote it, mentioned the name of the climber who had been responsible not only for that signature offensive on the hardest line, but who had also volunteered to retake this, this critically, this strategic point called Ridge X. And his name was John McCown. And when I read that, the light bulb went off. And I went back and I looked through all my transcriptions of the summit registers. And in 1939, there's John McCown with his brother Grove. And I started tracking all the climbs that he had done here. So you were able to do some sleuthing and put it together that this key figure in the Reaver Ridge action, this John McCowan, was a Teton climber too and was the missing link to finish telling the 10th Mountain Vision story from the perspective of Teton climbers. What did you end up finding out about him and his climbing in the Tetons? I realized that he had gone off. He had climbed his, he had, he had climbed for example, the very first climb he did was the Exum Ridge, which is sort of one of the 50 classic climbs in North America, Exum Ridge on, on the Grand. He had climbed that on August 3rd, 1939, with a fellow named Joseph Hawks, and they'd done it without a rope. So I don't know if you've ever gone up the Exum Ridge, but it's a phenomenal, just a, just a romp high up in the sky on beautiful stone. It's in the sun. It's absolutely gorgeous. 
and it's relatively it's pretty straightforward but it does have a couple of moves one of them is the step across this is where glenn exum in 1939 made his famous solo when he when he did the first ascent of the route in uh, football cleats that he borrowed from paul petzold and they were two sizes too big and he made the leap and if you've done that leap you know that it's kind of reassuring to have a rope there <laughs> And then there's another move up on the friction pitch, which you have to pinch this dimple. And it's really the only feature on the, on the pitch. And you got to pinch the dimple, and then you got to get your left foot up onto it and rock onto it. And then there's nothing for your hands. And so you levitate by faith alone. And so, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a phenomenal solo. But I just think of these guys in 1939, and it's the first climb you've ever done. <laughs> and you have clutter shoes for climbing shoes and you're up there without a rope but I just so I started looking at these climbs like that that he had done and then he got back here in 1940 and did more and he started really pushing it on the test pieces of the day here in the Tetons and then in 1941 he and a friend went to the coast range of British Columbia and they shot they went for um, Mount Waddington which was the seminal climb in North America when it was first ascended in 1936 by Fritz Wiesner and Bill House. So I realized that here was this missing link, and I could use it to tell, I could use John McCown's story to tell, to finish telling that story of the 10th Mountain Division from the perspective of Teton climbers. But that's not really the direction that you've landed on, right? I was calling up all my you know old friends who are writers and you know, I've edited a bunch of things, but I've never tried to write a book before. So among other folks, I called up Mark Sinnott, who um, <laughs> I've known for quite some time. I put him on the cover of the American Alpine Journal in 1996 for all the climbs he was doing in Baffin Island. And he was like, dude, look, here's the deal. If you really want to do this right, make sure you come up with a killer story and you tell it in a way that nobody else could ever possibly tell it before. And I hate to say this, but a history of the Tetons ain't that story. And I was like, oh, shit, really? Okay, I guess you're probably right. And so then I just started thinking about this incredible story that was unfolding before me as I continued the research, and it was the story of the 10th Mountain Division. And so the idea of um, this book, 90-pound rucksack, the true story of John McCown, the 10th Mountain Division, and the dawn of outdoor recreation in America materialized. So I pivoted and um, because I never have met a simple problem I haven't been able to complicate, I started looking at how I would um, get the word out. And so the formula for print has changed since um, I was doing, uh, since I was editing publications and um, I realized that I would really need to figure out a good marketing strategy and build an audience before I could actually sell the book. And one of the mediums that seems to be uh, relevant these days is podcasting. And so I put together a, an advisory board of the foremost experts of, on the 10th, and I sketched out 18 episodes based on the chapter that I'd written for the Teton book and on the research that I'd done on the 10th Mountain Division. And I dropped the first episode, which was what I called episode zero, and this was the genesis of 90-pound rucksack um, last month. We um, are dropping episode one, which is looking at the Winter War, which was the Soviet invasion of Finland in 1939 when the Finnish guerrilla soldiers 
disrupted Soviet advances for three and a half months by donning white camouflage and skiing up under cover of darkness through the Finnish woods, lobbing Molotov cocktails into tank cockpits and then disappearing before the Soviets could do anything. And they held them off in front of global audiences who looked at these Finnish guerrilla tactics and said, holy shit, we have to have winter warfare capabilities. So that included folks here in the U.S. because the U.S. hadn't had any sort of cold weather or mountain training since 1914. And essentially, we never had a mountain finding unit. And so um, episode one looks at how that winter war catalyzed the, um, the formation of the 10th Mountain Division. And at, because I had been using the American Alpine Journal in all my research for the Tetons, I, of course, used it for my research when I was looking at the 10th Mountain Division. And in 1946, the AHA came out with its, um, its war edition. And the war edition had all these articles by American Alpine Club members specifically about the war, and most of them were about the 10th Mountain Division. And what really blew me away when I was looking at the, uh, the 10th Mountain Division is they kept getting characterized as the ski troops. And I was reading the, the American Alpine General War Edition, and it kind of pissed me off. And I'm a skier. Like, I've skied the Grand half a dozen times. I put up, you know, a dozen routes here in the Tetons, and I love to ski. You know, you have to in Jackson. We lost our climbing gym in 2015. I mean, it's a long winter. But, you know, I identify as a climber. And I was reading all these articles by... Bill House and Bob Bates and H. Adams Carter and Bradford Washburn and Charlie Houston on um, climbers' contributions to the war. And I, I, I just got upset because what the climbers had contributed was not being represented in any of the histories I was reading or, or not in the way that I thought it should. And so I started looking at, okay, so what's the composition of outdoor rec in America before the war? And there's anywhere between one to two million skiers. Skiing had exploded in popularity. Beginning in the late 1920s, the, the advent of downhill and slalom racing had come from Europe, and um, it had been sort of co-opted by you know, these wealthy urban centers like Boston and New York. So all of a sudden, urban dwellers were able to use trains to go to these places in New Hampshire and Vermont and learn to ski. So convenience had um, made uh, the popularity of, of skiing surge. In climbing, there were 10,642 members of the various mountaineering organizations in the U.S. in 1939. So I looked at the membership of the American Alpine Club, which was around 300 members in 1939. It was minuscule. Uh, the Appalachian Mountain Club, the Sierra, um, the Sierra Club, the Mazamas, the Mountaineers, the Colorado Mountain Club. And then there are organiza university organizations like the Harvard Mountaineering Club, the Dartmouth Mountaineering Club, the Yale Mountaineering Club, etc. And there are around uh, roughly 10,000 folks who are part of these organizations. Of those, roughly 500 people could be called real climbers. And by that, I just mean they're using, they know how to use ropes, they know how to use carabiners and, and um, pitons and crampons and axes, and they're climbing essentially class five terrain, um, as opposed to just walking up hills. And at the same time, 
so it's understandable that the 10th Mountain Division would be populated primarily by skiers because there were simply more skiers in the U.S. and because the National Ski Patrol System had stepped forward and offered its services to the War Department, and they'd ended up um, recruiting and vetting um, and selecting the uh, candidates for the 10th Mountain Division. And so they pulled from the ranks of the skiers, and so there were a lot of skiers. But what I'd found was that the climbers had contributed disproportionately to the 10th Mountain Division. And that came in a number of different forms. So part of this new direction for your story, podcast, and book was unearthing the ways that climbing and climbers contribute to this effort since the 10th Mountain Division has historically really only been tied with skiing. I mean, I would be pissed too. Can you tell us a little bit about the climber contribution? So H. Adams Carter, the who had edited the American Alpine Journal before me, had, um, so he's 25 years old. All these guys are just, they're so young. He was a polyglot, so he spoke French and German and Italian and Spanish. He'd learned Balti on the hike into Nanda Devi, um, an expedition that um, uh, established the highest, it, uh, it was the highest summit ever climbed until, uh, gosh, I think it was like for, it was for a long time, until 1950. And um, Ad went through all the various libraries in the country and found the war manuals from the French, Italian, Swiss, German, and Austro-Hungarian mountain troops, and he translated them. And because America had no mountain experience and no cold weather experience, we had no war manuals. We didn't know how to teach soldiers how to operate in these conditions. And so Ad's contributions were these translations of these war manuals that became the basis for the War Department's 1941 war manual and um, that was this critical component of our mountain warfare strategy. He'd also found a boot that was being worn by his uh, guiding friend, Killian Ogie, in Switzerland in 1939. And he'd sort of laughed at him. He said, you know, what are those Frankenstein-looking boots you've got on? He said, well, Killian said, well, you know, we've got the same size foot. Why don't you try them on? And it was a revelation. Because in 1939, American, the state of the art for American footwear was tricuni nails. And among other things, I don't know if you've ever climbed, tried to climb with metal soles, but they don't really friction very well. And they also leave sparks at night, which are visible to enemy snipers. And so when Ad tried on these boots that had been made by a fellow named Vitali Bramini, Vibram, he found the boot sole for the U.S. Army. And so he came back to the U.S. And he, um, unfortunately, there, there was a supply chain issue because the boots were Italian and suddenly were looking at a war with Italy. And we were getting the materials because they were putting them all toward their war effort, which we hadn't quite joined yet, to fight against the Italians. And he found a boot. He found a, a climber in the Pinkham Notch uh, hut. In, in New Hampshire, in the, in the White Mountains, wearing a pair of these boots. And so I still haven't figured out who it was. It might have been Peter Limmer, a Swiss mountain um, a boot maker who was renowned at the time. But Ad requisitioned them and reverse engineered them, and they became the boot for the 10th Mountain Division. And that might just sound like a, you know, a side note, but 
in the First World War, one of the main casualties for soldiers was trench foot because they had shitty footwear. And so this boot became not only the quintessential climbing and skiing boot, but it also helped prevent against that. And so nobody really talked about that. And nobody really talked about the clothing and equipment that was necessary to fight in the mountains in cold weather conditions. And so who was responsible for the clothing and equipment? And it was a unit called the Quartermaster Corps. So the Army runs all, everything you need to fight a war goes through the Quartermaster Corps. America's um, reserves were non-existent. We didn't have anything to fight in cold weather or mountain warfare because we'd always trained in places like Georgia and the Philippines and Texas, and we didn't have anything in the, in the reserves for these, for these soldiers and these types of warfare. And so Bob Bates became, I think, the first person in the Quartermaster Corps. He was joined by Bill House, who is another one of the... Um, the seminal figures in American mountaineering in the 1930s, a key member of the American Alpine Club as well. And they began this process of testing and designing the, the clothing and equipment necessary to fight cold weather in the mountains. And that hadn't really been talked about. And these are, these are mission-critical points that you've got to check off if you're going to have a, a, a unit that can go up against the German and the... Italian mountain troops and nobody was really talking about that they were talking about the skiing and so the deeper I got into it the more agitated I became and um, <laughs> the more I became uh, convinced that this was a story worth telling. Yeah I mean at first glance I think it would be easy to think that gear development is boring or trivial but if you think about it the biggest advances in our sport are because of the gear we've developed and the type of climbing it enables so this makes total sense. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, the uh, Ken Henderson, who is a, another one of the um, seminal figures in American mountaineering in the 1920s and 1930s, had put together something called the American the Handbook of American Mountaineering uh, through the American Alpine Club and expedited its publication because it served as the um, foundation-level um, information for the War Department. Department's 1944 War Manual. This is how you climb and ski while fighting a war in cold weather conditions and in the mountains. And this was assisted by um, David Brower, who is uh, another one of the seminal climbers in America. Uh, came out of the Sierra, out of the Sierras, out of um, uh, Berkeley area, and there was a contingent of Sierra climbers who had really pushed the standards in American climbing. All of them became part of the 10th Mountain Division as well. And so David Brower edited this, the Manual of Ski Mountaineering um, that came out and, um, in 1940, I think it's 1944. And this, too, became part of that 1944 war. Soldiers to be able to take and um, learn the techniques and strategies for the type of warfare that they were then um, charged with executing in the Apennines. So all of this became part of this, this picture that was appearing before me that had not received the sort of credit that it deserved. And one of the key things that really got me going was that the story of the 10th Mountain Division is always told as beginning with a fellow named Minnie Dole. And so Charles Minot Dole, he was a blue-blooded skier who had, um, I think he was born in, 
New York, and he was uh, a member of the Amateur Ski Club of New York, which was very influential in the 1930s. It's very, they were very wealthy. They were you know, embracing the European um, approaches to skiing that were prevalent in the U.S. In the, in the 1930s and really advancing American skiing on this side. And he had started the National Ski Patrol System in 1938 with a fellow named Roger Langley. And in February 1940, they're sitting in an inn in Vermont, and they're talking about the Winter War. And so the Finnish resistance and the, the tactics that the guerrillas were using to stymie the Soviet advances. And they started thinking about what would happen if German troops uh, came into North America and, say, came in t through Canada and then rolled over those England um, hills in the winter through the Champlain Valley to evade the U.S. And they realized that what we needed was mountain troops. And so that February 18th, 1940 meeting is credited as with the, um, the inception of the effort to create a mountain troop in, in America. And what is very true about that is, yes, that meeting happened, and yes, that conversation occurred. And yes, Mitty Dole's tenacity was a force of nature. I mean, he once he got hold of this idea, his lobbying efforts with the War Depe Department were unbelievable. I mean, he would not take no for an answer. And he essentially wore down the War Department and was able to get the War Department to engage the National Ski Patrol system as its um, civilian counterpart in the development of the 10th Mountain Division. However, in August 1939, H. Adams Carter and Bob Bates are climbing in Switzerland, and they're climbing with Killian Ogie, and they're um, out one day, and they observe the maneuvers of the Swiss mountain troops. And so in Bob Bates' biography, Love of Mountains is Best, he talks about this moment and how they look at each other and they say, we need to talk to somebody in the War Department because the U.S. needs mountain troops. And so I ended up going down this rabbit hole because August 1939 was before the Soviet invasion of Finland. And so there, Ad and Bob began their lobbying efforts um, that fall with the War Department. And so I've, been, I've spent an awful lot of time trying to pinpoint exactly who they reached out to and when they reached out to them. And in a chronology of the 10th Mountain Division, John Embry um, states that the, um, he's, he's got the, the inception of the 10th Mountain Division occurring in January 1940 in a conversation between General George C. Marshall, who was the chief of staff, the highest ranking officer in the U.S. Army at the time, and a fellow named Lewis Johnson. And Johnson asked him, what are we doing about cold weather fighting? This was after the, they'd watched the Soviets get their butts handed to them by the Finns. And General Marshall said, we're, we've been working on this. We're interested in the idea. Um, we haven't had the funds to date to do it. The second entry in John Imbrie's chronology is May 1940. The American Alpine Club begins lobbying the War Depar Department on the need for mountain troops for America. The third entry is related to Minnie Dole and his outreach to the War Department. And I think he dated that in July of 1940. So here, this was it. I was like, look, not only did the climbers contribute so much to this war effort, but they may have actually been responsible for the inception of the 10th Mountain Division, which in turn 
created the surge in outdoor recreation and climbing and skiing after the war because all that clothing and equipment that Bates and House and Ad and all the other climbers um, contributed to the 10th Mountain Division became army surplus. And after the war, an economic boom ensued and Americans wanted to party and they partied. If they'd gone into the 10th Mountain Division, they'd fallen in love with the mountains and they went back to what they loved. And that was the mountains. And lo and behold, they could now pick up skis and climbing gear and um, the equipment necessary to have these sorts of adventures for a fraction of the cost that they would have in incurred before the war. So I was talking to Tom Hornbein, who, as I'm sure you know, was part of the 1963 Everest expedition, and he climbed the first ascent of the um, West Ridge on Everest. Hornbein Kular is named for him, of course. And he said, uh, you know, before Everest, I never bought a piton because I would just go to the cliffs and pluck out the pitons that the 10th, 10th Mountain Division had left in the rocks all through Colorado. And um, so I just got really excited about telling the story and, and showing how the 10th Mountain Division was responsible um, not only for this incredible effort that ended the German occupation of Italy, which in turn helped catalyze um, the, our victory um, in Europe uh, in World War II, but how the 10th Mountain Division, Division was responsible for really the dawn of outdoor rec in America after the war, because after the war, that's when outdoor rec in America exploded. Now it's a $385 billion a year industry, which is larger than agriculture and mining and utilities. It's a cornerstone of the American economy. And here it began with these fellows from the 10th Mountain Division. And that story really hadn't been told the way that it, had, it was emerging in front of me as I continued to do all this research. So that's a long-winded way of saying that the 90-pound rucksack is this 18-episode podcast that tells the story of the 10th Mountain Division from the perspective of climbers like H. Adams Carter and Bob Bates and Paul Petzl and Joan Paul Stetter and John McCown as I lead up to the book, which I'm writing simultaneously, using all the research I'm doing for the podcast as the basis for this narrative nonfiction account, true story, First Lieutenant John Albert McCown II, and the 10th Mountain Division and the dawn of outdoor recreation in America. Yes, clearly there is so much involved there and very much worthy of a deep dive into the podcast and deep dive into the book. So I'm excited for our listeners to get excited about all your story by just listening to this snapshot right now and then diving into your stuff later. I guess, could you tell us maybe a story or two more elaborate or, or elaborate or share another story about, you know, operations that the 10th Mountain Division were involved in in the war and was, I, my, I mean, were there more than just that one project? <laughs> Weaver Ridge? Yeah, more than Weaver Ridge? Or is that pretty much like kind of the crucial element of what they were working on? That was their signature offensive. Mm -hmm. So the incredible irony of the 10th Mountain Division is that after training for two and a half years in Camp Hale in the Colorado Rockies and training before that in on Mount Rainier uh, in an earlier evolution of the division, also in their, their efforts 
in uh, Seneca Rocks, West Virginia. So these were the lowland mountain operations that the War Department had had deemed necessary to train soldiers how to assault climb. Um, so how to climb with rifles on your backs and packs on your backs. And that was a critical story that really has been told as well. And so that was put together by David Brower and led by John McCown. And so this was a, about a six-month effort where they were taking soldiers from throughout the Army who would come to West Virginia to learn how to climb the military way. And then they would go back to their units and teach them how to climb based on what they learned there in West Virginia. And so when you're looking at the dawn of outdoor recreation in America, what we need to understand is that before the war, American, the state of American climbing was it was kind of beginning to catch up to the state of the art in Europe. But if you look at the state of art of climbing in America before the war, you're looking at climbs like the Stettner Ledges, you know, that the Stettner brothers did in 1927. You're looking at um, Mount Waddington, so that's Bill House and Fritz Wiesner in Canada in uh, 1936. You're looking at climbs like the North Face of the Grand, so that is uh, 1936 here in the Tetons by Paul Petzold and his brother Eldon, and very importantly, um, Jack Durrance. And so Jack Durrance and his brother Dick Durrance and their brother Jimmy were in Germany, in Garmisch, in, um, in, for high school, and they learned with, with the Munich School of Climbing. And so this was one of the most dynamic schools of climbing in the world. So they would, if they had embraced pitons, they'd embraced carabiners, they'd em they had really learned all the um, belaying tactics and techniques and the, uh, the big wall approaches that Americans just didn't, we just didn't have it. I mean, compared to the Euros, we were so far behind. I mean, Tito Piaz was on site soloing five, eight, 600 meter routes in the Dolomites in 1905. It was so badass. And, you know, Americans, nobody knew how to repel in the Tetons until 1929 when Ken Henderson and uh, Robert Underwood came out and taught Fridia Fixell and Phil Smith on, an ascent of Mount, on the first ascent of Mount Owen. So let's see, where am I going with this one? Sorry, I, I do love rabbit holes. Um, so, you know, all these guys are learning how to climb in the 10th Mountain Division, and then after the war, that's when they really were able to apply those skill sets to, to the uh, benefit of American climbing. And so, the Reaver Ridge action, which was this, this signature action of the 10th Mountain Division, was actually the only time that these skill sets that they developed over the course of all this training were put to use. The great irony of the 10th Mountain Division is that they skied a handful of times on patrols when they first got to Italy in, uh, in January of 1945. All of that equipment that was developed at such great expense got left in a warehouse in Boston because some army, <laughs> some army higher up thought those damn 10th Mountain Division soldiers, if they're so good, they don't need anything better than what all the regular army soldiers get to use for their, for their missions. And so they get over there, and instead of all the sleeping bags that had been so laboriously developed, um, they had a blanket, you know, so you're in January, 
1945 in the Apennines, there's 60 to snow on the ground, and you've got a wool blanket, and you've got regular issue army sh- army shoes, and you you don't have any of those things that you that you learned to climb and ski on for all those years in the U.S. And I call the 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 project 90 pound rucksack because they trained with 90 pounds 90 pound rucksacks on their back so they would go um skiing and so this is prototypical at stuff with 90 pound backpacks and i don't know when the last time you put a 90 pound pack on and tried to go uphill for hours at a time was but it's um it's it's back breaking so when these guys hit italy they didn't have any of their equipment but they had the stamina that they had built up over the course of all these years of training. And they had the camaraderie of having gone into the mountains again and again and again in all conditions. In the winter, they were ski mountaineering, and in the summer, they were climbing. And we all know what those experiences in the mountains will do between you and your partners. And it creates the fellowship of the rope that is, for me, it's the most important thing in my life. And so these um, 13,129 soldiers, when they got to Italy, had this unifying identity as mountaineers. So they got up River Ridge, they took it without a casualty, they held it against the counterattacks. The next day, they, the, the rest of the division was able to take Mount Belvedere, and over the course of uh, the following week or so, they were able to hold it, and um, they did so at incredible expense. Um, the casualty rate was through the roof, but they held it against the best mountain troops that the Germans had. And these mountain troops had trained since the days of Napoleon because European is Alpine. Uh, Europe is Alpine. They, they were always fighting in Alpine conditions. And they knew how to fight in Alpine conditions. And by the end of the war, they had 14 mountain divisions, and we had one. But the 10th Mountain Division when they took River Ridge and then proceeded to then take Mount Belvedere and break the Gothic line, they proceeded to roll over the German mountain troops like a tsunami. Mm. And over the course of 144 days, they rolled all the way through the Apennines into the Po Valley up to Lagodigarda, which is where Mussolini had his, his villa, and they broke the German back. And they did it in such a way that the U.S. Army's Fifth Army, which was charged with resupplying them, was unable to keep up because they moved so fast. And what was incredible to me is um, that stamina and that identity that they developed through all those years of training in the mountains had given them a fortitude and a tenacity that allowed them to end the German occupation in Italy, which in turn helped catalyze the end of the war in Europe. And um, I came away from this absolutely blown away by these guys and what they had done. And ironically, very little of it had to do with climbing or skiing, but holy shit, were they fit. And they were fierce. And they paid an incredible price. So out of those 13,129 I think uh, 4, 000, over 4,000 folks had, let's see, I wrote this down, 4,154 were wounded, 969 were killed. So they suffered 
the most casualties of any American unit fighting in Italy. And they did it in a style that was inimitable. And really their, their real grace occurred not on the battlefield, which was a horrific place to be, absolutely horrific. But when they came back to America after the war and fanned out into the mountains that they'd fallen in love with. And they then went on to do things like become the leader of the, um, the Sierra Club, David Brower, and go on to become one of the great environmental champions of American history. And they did things like start Knowles, Paul Petzl, who with the 10th Mountain Division was in charge of mountain rescue operations at Camp Hale. And they started companies like Nike and Jerry Mountaineering. And they started the fields of avalanche science and wilderness rescue. Here in the Tetons, a number of, of folks came straight out of the Mountain Division to Jackson, and they went to work for the park. So Dick Emerson, who was with David Brower, um, with his unit, was the first climber ever hired by the National Park Service specifically for his climbing. And he became part of the rescue operations here in the Tetons. Mm -hmm. uh, the same with Ernie Field and Doug McLaren and John Montaigne and Bob Creer. All of them learned how to, to fight with the 10th Mountain Division. But very importantly, John Montaigne, for example, um, was put in charge of the 85th uh, Glacier S Climbing School. And so this is post-armistice. This is August 1945. And he put together a, a rescue protocol as part of his, uh, his responsibilities in the Julian Alps. And so after the armistice, you know, all the, all the um, soldiers, they just wanted to, they were drinking and carousing and all those other things. And the, what I love about the 10th Mountain Division is they just wanted to climb. So they, they went up into uh, the Julian Alps and they started to climb. And John Montaigne was put in charge of this climbing school. And he got involved in a rescue on Groglockner, which is Austria's highest peak. And they had to rescue a, an adjacent party that ended up getting caught in a landslide. And they had to lower them down a glacier. And it took all day long. And it was, it was hazardous and it was incredibly hard. And John Montaigne, when he got to the Tetons and became a Grand Teton National Park Ranger, put together the first training um, for mountain rescue that the Tetons had ever seen. And this, in turn, the next year became the, the, um, the genesis of the Grand Teton Mountain Rescue Team. Now they're known as the Jenny Lake Rangers. They were made possible by the 10th Mountain Division and those guys that came out of the 10th Mountain Division. So when you're looking at the the, the landscape of American climbing after the war, you cannot help but see the fingerprints of the those soldiers from the 10th Mountain Division all over it. Yeah, and thanks for like illuminating that element because when I had previously heard about the 10th Mountain Division, I had very much associated it with skiing. So I think this is really cool and I think a lot of climbers are going to love learning about this history, this deep, very intricate, very complicated history that just fans out across American climbing. We're running low on time, so I'll just ask a few more questions. Do you know if there's any evidence of like during that training block when the 10th Mountain Division was in Colorado training, was there any element of like first ascents or like development of climbing during that training time? Or were they mostly kind of learning on climbs that had been established before on mountains that had been climbed before? 
No, there were um, some first ascents. They did the uh, some first winter ascents um, in December and January of 1943. They were involved in all the first ascents in the Pando Valley. And so if you go in there, there are all these crags and outcrops. Um, and they had just, you know, they're, they're, you can still find pitons up there. So they were climbing all over there. I'm sure that they were responsible for a lot of uh, first ascents in um, Seneca Rocks. So I haven't quite got to that chapter of my research yet, but I'm looking forward to that. But really importantly, what they were responsible for were all these prototypical elements that we now take for granted in climbing. And so Joe Stetner, let's see, was it Joe? Yeah, uh, no, it was Paul Stetner. And so he was older. He was too old to be able to deploy overseas. But, you know, Joe and Paul, they'd watched the rise of the Third Reich, and they had a personal reason for fighting Hitler and the Nazis. And so um, Paul went in, and he trained the mountain troops at Camp Hale. And among other things, he developed the first artificial ice climbing wall so that they could learn how to ice climb. The first climbing, artificial climbing, rock climbing wall I've ever heard about was developed in Camp Hale as well. The ski mountaineering that they were doing is exactly what we're doing now uh, when we're going out in the, in the mountains in the winter and going up, you know, any, anything you do in the Tetons in the winter, you're doing on skiing and it traces its roots right back to what those guys were doing in terms of gear and equipment and tactics in Camp Hale. So it wasn't only the first ascents, but it was the approaches, the tactics, the equipment. Um, one great example, before the war, all the ropes the climbers were using were natural fiber ropes. So manila and hemp, and they had a number of, um, of uh, limitations, including the fact that they didn't really hold the sorts of weights that we're accustomed to now in falls. They also rotted from within, which is not what you want to see with your ropes. And so the Quartermaster Corps and Bob Bates, among others, helped to develop the very first nylon rope. And there's a famous story of Bob Bates sitting in his office in Washington, D.C., and he gets this shipment of ropes from the Plymouth Cordage Company. And um, he's so excited that he rigs up an anchor off his desk and wraps out the, uh, his second-story second office window and is in yodeling on the way down. And his secretary on the bottom floor is convinced that he's committing suicide, and <laughs> so she, she raises the alarm. But that rope became a critical part of the evolution of climbing after the war. So did the, the pitons. So did the advances that the tent uh, made with, with carabiners. The crampons, the ice axes, the tents, the sleeping bags, the stoves, all the stuff came out of the tent. So it wasn't just about the climbing and the ski mountaineering that they were doing but the ways that they were doing it that really had these, these profound effects on how we climbed and skied after the war. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I guess, could you tell us a little bit more about the war edition of the AAJ? I think a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with it. Like, are they talking about specifically this type of elements, like the development of these types of gear, the, the development of these tactics, or are they talking about specifically like the action at Weaver Ridge? Um, there's a mix. So there are pieces by folks that were not involved with the tent that were nonetheless important to the war effort overall. So Charlie Houston, Bob Bates, Radford Washburn, Terry Moore, and H. Adams Carter were part of the Harvard Five. And so they were responsible for helping to advance uh, American climbing standards before the war. A lot of the ascents that they were doing in Alaska and the Yukon, and then of course with Nanda Devi and K2. 
So Charlie has the lead article in the 1946 War Edition, and he's a high-altitude physiologist. And so he was studying the impacts of oxygen on the ability to climb at altitude. And his very last, I've got the, the book right here, he goes through the physiology of it. And at this point, you're thinking, okay, so this is 19, early 1940s. Nobody knows if you can climb to 8,000-meter peaks, you know, to the summits of 8,000-meter peaks. Charlie had been part of that K2 expedition. He'd gotten to 26,000 feet. So he knew you can get pretty high, but they were using oxygen. So he just has this article about the possibility of climbing to 29,000 feet. And he says, can men reach 29,000 feet or higher without oxygen? Until it is actually done, the answer will be doubtful at best. But by the best calculations, which we know how to make at the present time, we can say that 29,000 feet is only imperceptibly worse than 28,000 feet. On paper, at any rate, men can climb to 29,000 feet and perhaps higher. He will need magnificent physical condition and climbing ability. He must have sound judgment and great perseverance and courage. His food, his creature comforts, and his climbing stages must be elaborately planned. He will probably be as well off without oxygen as with it. One day, a man will do it. little sexist, but he was spot on, right? Brad Washburn has this incredible piece about what he contributed during the war effort, which was helping the, the Air Force, which had not been in existence before the war, to survive the rigors of fighting in that style. And so it's hard to believe, but before the war, the pilots and specifically the gunners were flying these in these planes and the gunners are in their little their little gunner pockets i don't know what you call them and they didn't have plexiglass so they're sitting at 30,000 feet flying without moving for 6 to 8 hours at a time and the temps are going down to 60 below and so they had to figure out a way to keep them from freezing to death and so Brad goes through this whole article about the the clothing that they came up with as a result of this challenge. And so they needed an outfit that they could wear on the ground when they're taking off, that they could wear for six to eight hours while flying at 30,000 feet and at 60 below, that they could wear when they got shot down over enemy lines and had to run, and that they could wear when they got shot down over water. And so he came up with this multi-layered electric suit. And I was just like, you got to be, I, I mean, we don't even have electric suits now. That is freaking awesome. So there are all these articles that are, there are those sorts of articles. But then there are all these articles by, Bill House has the article on the clothing and equipment that was de developed and how it was developed over the course of the war. So American Alpine Club, Bob Bates and uh, Brad Washburn in uh, 1942 in the Yukon mounted an expedition that tested a lot of this clothing and equipment. 1943, they went to Denali and they made the, first, the fourth ascent of the peak as part of this testing regiment for the gear and clothing that was part of the 10th Mountain Division. So um, they've got an article about that. And then they also just have uh, one of the famous soldiers from the 10th Mountain Division is a fellow named Hugh Evans. And he's got an article called What's Behind That Battle Star. And it's, it's sort of a heartbreaking read because he talks about just what they encountered. And what they encountered is simply, it, it's just difficult to, to, for somebody who has not been involved in war to understand what they went through. And I'll just read a short passage from it. And so Hugh Evans was Bob Bates' student at Phillips Exeter. He's 19. 
these are kids and they are in the front lines and they are they are fighting and they are dying he writes upon reaching the vicinity of the guns i came upon bob my platoon sergeant who had been riddled through the chest by a machine gun burst he was still living another man was kneeling beside him holding his yellowish green hand seeing that he had a sucking wound and not being able to think of anything but to put an airtight bandage on the wound I ripped the back out of the pile jacket of the kneeling soldier and began to make such a bandage. Before I had finished, I looked up at Bob's eyes and saw that he had died. I felt his pulse to be sure, and all the kneeling soldier said was, he begged God to let him live. He kept saying, oh God, please not now, please not now. Bob was 20. I got up and left, my eyes filled with tears of anger. He was the first person I had seen die. And so it just really brings you into the immediacy of... Uh, of what these guys were up against. And I mean, I, I, I found myself very, I didn't ever expect to come away from this project with uh, a profound level of patriotism that I'd never known before. But what what these folks contributed to to our country, it's a debt we can never repay. And that's all there in the war edition. And um, if you ever find an opportunity to get it, it's just a phenomenal read, and I hope, I hope you do have a chance to read it. Yeah, thank you for bringing us to that point, because I think, you know, a lot of our conversation is created by you know, this appreciation, this awe for the way that the 10th Mountain Division and all of these people that you mentioned, like, had an impact on climbing, had an impact on recreation in general in the United States. And that can be, like, really exciting, but also it's tempered by this, like, real reality of these people were at war and many people died and suffered a lot. And so like, there's both like the exciting development of that, but also you have to hold that intention with what you were just like that passage that you were just sharing and that kind of the impact of what people lost and the people that we lost. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you so much for bringing your expertise to the podcast today. Um, I love these stories. I'm so excited to listen to the full podcast series and especially this next episode that's dropping in only a couple weeks. Where can listeners find the 90 pound rucksack? So you can go to christianbeckwith.com and uh, you'll find it there. And we're doing two versions. We're doing, because I've never met a simple problem I haven't been able to complicate, we're doing an abridged version. So that's just for anybody who's interested and then we're doing unabridged versions and those in those we're going much deeper into depth into a lot of these these topics and these these point these elements of the of the division's evolution and then we also have supporting material so if you really want to go down the rabbit hole we've got the photos and the documents and the documentation that supports all the research that we're doing amazing okay i hope our audience definitely goes over to your website and checks that out Thank you so much. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Absolutely. That was so great. <laughs> Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. Camp Hale, mentioned in this podcast as a crucial training site for the 10th Mountain Division, has just become a national monument. The AAC and our partners at the Outdoor Alliance were part of the effort for advocating for this national monument, and we are so psyched for this win. If you want to support the AAC's efforts to advocate for and protect public lands and the climbing on it, join the club or renew your membership at AmericanAlpineClub.org.